Welcome to Legalese. At Legalese, we offer you a diverse and civil perspective on current issues affecting America and beyond, inviting the smartest minds from Arizona and the country to politely discuss the things that matter in a Socratic manner. Our intent is to improve discourse and information dissemination in a time of hyperpartisanship and poor critical thinking. No one will be called names. No one's beliefs will be mocked. This is our response to recent and biased news content. We are here simply to deliver balanced and informative discussions about legal matters that affect us all, from yours truly, soon-to-be lawyers and current lawyers and journalists united. We offer you all of this without convoluted legalese, which is a word for fancy lawyer talk. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Felina Beattie, and you're listening to Legalese. This episode on legal considerations after marijuana legalization uh, is going to be hosted by myself, ASU law professor Valina Beattie, as well as ASU law professor Laura Cordes. You can find our bios on the website. Professor Cordes, I'll be handing this over to you now. Thank you very much, Professor Beattie. So faithful listeners of this podcast will recall that back in 2019, we produced an episode on the challenges of bankruptcy for marijuana businesses. And that episode featured Judge Dan Collins and myself as guests. In January of this year, we heard that that episode had reached Guam and specifically had reached the ears of Chief Judge Francis Tidenko Gatewood. We were, of course, delighted to hear that our episode had helped inform listeners in Guam about this topic. And today, we are recording what's essentially part two of that episode. And I'm thrilled to say that Judge Tidenko Gatewood will be joining us as a guest after listening to part one of our episode. It truly is a small world. This episode is particularly timely because recreational marijuana has been legal for us here in Arizona since November of 2020. And in fact, Arizona marijuana sales for the adult use market officially began this January, which marks the fastest transition from voter approval to sales implementation of any state that has legalized marijuana to date. Of course, there are still restrictions in place for old and new marijuana users, and there are many lingering questions, some of which we'll get to explore today. And this episode, as Professor Beattie said, is co-hosted by myself and ASU law professor Valena Beattie, who is Deputy Director of the Academy for Justice. Our focus today is really to educate audiences on multiple aspects of the marijuana industry, specifically the business side and the criminal justice side, with a focus on shifts and changes post-legalization. Professor Beattie will ask some criminal justice-related questions about marijuana, and then later on, I'll ask some business-related questions on the same topic. Now, it is my great pleasure to introduce today's distinguished guests. First, we have Judge Daniel Collins. Judge Collins was appointed a judge of the U.S. Bankruptcy Court for the District of Arizona in 2013, and he served as the chief bankruptcy judge for the District of Arizona from March 2014 through March 2018. Listeners of the podcast will remember Judge Collins from our previous episode on marijuana and bankruptcy, which aired back in 2019. Today, Judge Collins will be speaking to us about some of the business implications of marijuana legalization. Next, we have Judge Francis Tidenko Gatewood, who serves as the Chief United States District Judge of the Federal District Court of Guam, a position she's held since being confirmed in 2006. She also sits as the Chief Bankruptcy Judge for the District of Guam, and she and our final guest will be discussing some of the criminal justice issues today. Finally, we have Professor Jelani Jefferson Exum. Professor Jefferson Exum is a nationally recognized expert in sentencing law and procedure, and she is the Philip J. McElroy Professor of Law at the University of Detroit Mercy Law School. Professor Jefferson Exum will be informing us about the criminal justice side of the marijuana industry today. And of course, you can find full bios of all of our guests on our website, legalesepodcast.com. Judge Collins, Judge Tidenko Gatewood, and Professor Jefferson Exum, welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. And if you could, I'd just like to ask you to start off by telling us a bit about yourselves and how you each decided to spend your careers in law. Judge FTG, go ahead. Gentlemen, isn't he? Ladies first. <laughs> well, let me just say, um, okay, so I, how, how I started my legal career was while well, attending Marquette University, you know, it's a Jesuit Catholic university. I um, spoke to one of my philosophy professors because I was trying to get out of being in pre-med. <laughs> I hated pre-med, to be honest with you. And so, uh, and the reason why I knew that was because my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, was a biochem uh, chemistry double major. He didn't attend Marquette, but 
he was at another school in New Mexico. And then I, I just realized that, you know, maybe I'm in the wrong track. So uh, my, my professor David or father David suggested I get into an introduction to legal system. So I did, I switched to um, political science and a philosophy minor in the College of Liberal Arts. And, uh, and then I attended law school at University of Missouri, Kansas City. And the and, and I, um, reason why I went there, I actually didn't want to go there, but uh, my boyfriend gave me an ultimatum. He basically said, if you don't, we don't go to the same law school and dental school, we're done. <laughs> I said, wow, he's kind of rough. <laughs> that was like six, I mean, he's about almost six and a half years older than I am. So, you know, I was like, oh, I wanted to go to school in California after having been at Marquette. Anyway, long story short, I ended up going to University of Missouri, Kansas City School of Law. I loved it there. I really did. Um, even though that wasn't my first choice, but I ended up, the school was great, the dean was great, the deans were great, uh, and I ended up clerking after law school to the presiding judge of Jackson County Circuit Court, Forrest Hanna, who was a great mentor, and uh, he encouraged me to, you know, work for the government, be a public servant, so I ended up applying to the public defender's office on Guam, didn't get accepted for whatever reason, and then so I went into becoming a prosecutor, I uh, applied, uh, and then I... Um, had a really great mentor. The chief prosecutor at the attorney general's office was a former public defender out of LA. His name was Tom Lannon. And so I, I, I worked with him, became a, and I love being a prosecutor in Guam. I also was a prosecutor in Kansas City, Missouri. I uh, worked at the drug unit, homicide unit, and I was a trial team leader for sex crimes. So, uh, and I worked for an elected prosecutor, which was also a very interesting uh, path to my career. And then, uh, and then I moved to becoming a judge. Uh, again, I, I didn't expect to become a judge, but there were three governors of Guam that spoke to me. First governor was Joseph Ada, and he wanted to uh, recommend or nominate me to the Guam Superior Court. So I was, I was confirmed and was a, a Superior Court judge for almost eight years. Then Governor Carl Gutierrez wanted me to be on the Guam Supreme Court to be an associate justice. So I was on the appellate division for four years. And then Governor Felix Camacho, who attended Marquette University with me, and it was a friend of mine from high school, he uh, recommended, he was a governor at the time, he recommended my name to President George Bush, W. Bush, and I was uh, nominated, and then I became a federal judge. And so here I am, and, uh, and I was explaining to Judge Collins that I didn't realize that being a federal district court judge on Guam also meant being a bankruptcy judge. <laughs> I know what, what I don't know anything about bankruptcy, to be honest with you. So anyway, so that's where I am, and that's that's how my career unfolded. I'll jump in here. Um, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to do this and to talk about these issues. So I, um, you know, I've been I was exposed to law as a as a kid. My dad's a lawyer, and so I sort of had it in my mind that it might be, you know, it, something that would be interesting to me. But I really got interested in criminal law um, just from a, a function of growing up in New Orleans, Louisiana, and the things that I saw as a kid. It was very apparent, sort of like in my face, how um, race and socioeconomic status really played a part in how somebody would be treated in the legal system and especially in the criminal justice system. And so um, I went to law school with that in mind, thinking that I wanted to work on issues of social justice and, and um, sort of race in the law, thought I would be a, a public defender. And you know, the twists and turns of life um, led me to an academic career instead. I, I was really um, advised by my mentors, uh, especially the judges who I clerked for, to go an academic route. They they thought that I would really enjoy it. And I really have. It's a, it's a career that's let me engage in these issues on social justice and policing and punishment reform, um, all the things that I wanted to be engaged with anyway. And so, um, so it's, you know, it's, it's definitely, it wasn't what I went into thinking I would do. You know, I didn't think I'd be a law professor, but I, I sure am happy that I am. So when I hear your story, Professor Jefferson Exum, I'm thinking about uh, my own father who uh, was a banker and uh, worked with a lot of lawyers. I, I was a finance and accounting major in undergrad down at the University of Arizona. And along the way, I announced that I thought it would be great to take a fifth year to study English literature and poetry. And that's when my dad got busy and said, uh, I know lots of lawyers. I think you ought to take the LSAT. I did. I, I did all right. I got into the law school and then he knew he had me. Um, but uh, uh, so he derailed, I think, in a self-defensive measure, derailed my uh, my future as a poet. Anyhow, I start with a law firm that did a lot of uh, banking and, and bankruptcy related work. The more I did bankruptcy, the more I loved it. I did it for 30 years. And now I, I've been a federal bankruptcy judge for eight years. 
Thank you all. And so just one more sort of introductory question, and this is open to, to anyone and everyone, really. How have you seen the marijuana industry grow and change throughout the years in each of your respective careers, whether it's academia, regulation, the criminal justice system, or the courtroom? Well, how about I start on that one? Uh, my my uh, docket one day received an involuntary bankruptcy. It was a business uh, involved in the marijuana world, and it was the very first bankruptcy related to the marijuana industry in our district. Um, I took a real interest in it, uh, started reading a lot about it, uh, have kind of lectured on the, the subject some. Um, so I've, I've been following this for a period of time now. There's a tremendous number of really great puns that come out of this world, and so I enjoy that as well. But uh, the, the business side is, is probably what I, I enjoy the most and find sort of riveting because there's just been a massive move of money into this space, and we'll talk some more about that later. So uh, I think that for in terms of my career as a prosecutor, um, you know, there's just not very many uh, prosecutions of marijuana cases. I mean, you have to have like a huge amount for purposes of rising to the level of distribution or manufacturing for uh, most state or even federal prosecutors to uh, embark on getting an indictment. So I, I just think that there's been less and less prosecutions. And the only ones that, that really do come to light are the ones where uh, there would be a huge amount. And I think uh, with the... Um, passage in the public acceptance of marijuana uh, recreationally and medicinally throughout the nation uh, that has that has taken um, you know front seat in terms of how attorneys uh, from the government uh, proceed with prosecutions so I see less and less and I'd say you know in the academic space what I think has been really exciting is that you're seeing people's really life work um, start to have an effect. There are people who have been doing grassroots activism around marijuana decriminalization and legalization for decades, and it didn't get much traction. And now, um, now that you're starting to see that, it means that you're seeing, you know, law review symposia and conferences on these issues. You're, you know, you're having courses that are about uh, cannabis law in law schools and in business schools. And so just sort of opening up the the discussions in a mainstream sort of way, I think is exciting. You know, I'll talk later about some of the flip sides to that, but um, but that has definitely been been a big change. Professor, let me ask you this question, uh, because I asked the same question of Professor Kouras uh, last week, and that is, are you starting to see uh, a groundswell of, of support for medical research in this area? Because my sense is that there's a great desire for the cash that's associated with this type of business, but I'm not so sure that the medical... Uh, research is as robust as you might want before you legalize marijuana. And that, yeah, I mean, it's true. I don't think that it's for a lack of interest. I think there are many in the medical field, science field, that are very, very interested in studying more of the medical effects of marijuana. It's a, and a problem or an obstacle here is the way that um, marijuana is scheduled by the federal government. And so that puts a lot of limits and barriers on what different industries can do. Um, but I wouldn't say it's for lack of interest. I, I'd say that we still have some barriers and obstacles that we need to move out of the way on a federal level. That's essentially what Professor Cord has told me as well. And that's your observation at ASU. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say. <laughs> fair. So here's one thing that sort of crosses my mind, and that is, uh, at least in the bankruptcy world, we're seeing some very big uh, uh, pharmacology, pharmaceutical businesses uh, that have been engaged in the opioid world. Um, and that went on for a long time. They made loads of money. Uh, and now we've come to realize that there's a real uh, uh, price that comes with that. Uh, I wonder someday whether the medical research is going to demonstrate that there are some prices to be paid in the marijuana space as well. And is that the next opioid question in litigation, for example? You know, I, I'll just jump in there and say, I think I think we don't know. Right. And that's that's sort of the sort of the big um, the big question and the big reason to allow research to go forward. We don't know all of the sort of things that can be unlocked um, through treatment with marijuana, but we do also have the opioid context as a cautionary tale that can allow us to be careful and thoughtful in how we um, in how we deal with regulation and prescriptions and, and the like. But I, I you know I, I see it more as a reason to open up that avenue rather than to to uh, keep it as something that we're, we're all in the dark. And you know, I just was going to add, like uh, one of the uh, one of my law clerks uh, called me into his office yesterday and said, "Judge, you know, we have a um, a defendant who has been sentenced by you, and you know, like, I don't know, ten years or something for drug uh, for drug crime, 
And uh, he's up for, um, and he's already returned from prison. I mean, he's come back. Now he's on supervised release on the federal system. As you know, they'll serve their hard time and then come back and be on supervised release for three to five years. So he's on his supervised release. And now he's violating his supervised release conditions by smoking marijuana. So even though it's not really, I mean, it's been, you know, decriminalized or there's just not, the prosecution is so little. The question now is, that his, I'm sure his attorney is going to argue to me today, this afternoon, uh, hey, you know what? Come on now. <laughs> we don't, you shouldn't, we, he shouldn't be held in violation of, of his supervised release because uh, there is no prosecution of this. And so uh, that's, that's going to be something that I think we're going to have to start dealing with here uh, as, a, as, a criminal lawyer, as a criminal judge. Well, that seems like a perfect time to turn it over to Professor Beatty, who has some criminal justice questions for our guests today. Thank you, Professor Cordes. Uh, and for our listeners, uh, Judge Tidingo Gatewood, um, could you explain what could be the ramifications for this defendant who is coming before you who um, has violated his supervised release? Yeah, so oh, so what would happen is he would he he could face like three to nine months in prison. Uh, for violating release. I mean, generally, I won't say it all the time, it just depends on the case, but uh, if you're a second-time offender, if you're in my court for second revocation, I'm going to give you uh, more time. Uh, if I gave you three months before on the first revocation, second revocation is going to go up, definitely. Uh, and then it just depends on the facts and circumstances, but he'll, he'll, uh, he'll, he or she will have to spend time into prison. You know? So I'm looking at, you know, I'm wondering, is this a, just a contempt proceeding? Because it's not a criminal violation. This is not what he's, he's not being charged with a crime by a prosecution, prosecutor through an indictment or an information or a complaint, depending on the amount. What he's doing done is he's, he's violating the court order to follow conditions of supervised release. So his consequence will be, uh, you're going to go back into jail and perhaps even increase uh, conditions of release in terms of severity. You know, it just depends. Thank you for explaining that because I'm sure that's an issue for a number of courts, um, uh, you know, in different states. Yeah, and I think also too what, what's uh, and I'm not sure if the professor or others, uh, uh, Professor Jefferson uh, Exum uh, might know might talk about is the um, the uh, the measurement of marijuana content in some someone's blood or urine. I mean, we know what blood alcohol content is. We know that to a reasonable scientific certainty. You can say, uh, you can get an expert witness on the stand to testify that that person's under the influence of intoxicating liquor, but that's not necessarily the case for marijuana. So I, I'm sure that the professors will, I mean, you, you probably have been discussing that uh, with your research and your academic colleagues, I suppose. I can, can't offer a full answer there, but what I will say is that in my own work, and I know in a lot of the work that folks are doing in this space, is more so questioning the why. Like, why do we want to know about certain amounts? Why, you know, what is our end goal? What are we, um, what and why are we criminalizing? And so that's really where I focused and where I think really the, the trend of decriminalization and legalization is going is reevaluating why we were punishing people for, um, for using this substance in the first place. And reevaluating dangers, I'm um, reevaluating, you know, medical uh, benefits, and and to me, that's really the the important question: is what what are we what are we concerned about? How do we want to get to a place where we're addressing those concerns, so that we can have really thoughtful approaches to marijuana use and possession? Yeah. So for yeah, for example, like marijuana is um, categorized under Schedule Controlled Substance One, Schedule One which means it's of no medicinal value or of no value at all. And so, I mean, a lot of uh, research has indicated that, that it's improperly placed there. It shouldn't be placed at that high of a, the highest uh, level of controlled substance. So, you know, the, the fact that it's potentially or actually misplaced, I guess, according to the scientists, uh, is very uh, challenging, I think. And it and if you want it out, like you said, Professor, I mean, if you're, if you're asking why, why are we even talking about this? If it's in the wrong place, we, let's put it where it's supposed to be, if at all, if it should even be a scheduled controlled substance. So. Right, absolutely. And that's part of the issue we were talking about earlier, that because it's a Schedule One drug or controlled substance, there can't be the same research on it. Yeah, it's true. It's, yeah, that, so I, that's right. And so when you hear about, I mean, are, are you, like when I have methamphetamine addicts come into my court, I, I can tell. 
I mean, some of them walk in and they're like, oh, we're in drug court. And they're like, this guy's high. So somebody please go, go take a test on him right now. Get him out of my court. As soon as we do, I could, we could just tell automatically. I know it already. Uh, marijuana, you can't really tell. <laughs> Somebody's high on marijuana. I mean, I've seen them. I've seen them come to court on marijuana too. <laughs> you know, and alcohol. <laughs> yeah. Well, and Judge Shadingo Gatewood. Um, that does lead me to if you could share with us in our audience what the lay of the land in Guam is for uh, marijuana and legalization of marijuana, what that looks like in Guam so far. Well, so let me just tell you a little bit about Guam briefly, because it ties in with the lay of the land and then the concerns that we might have. So uh, as you may or may not know, Guam is where America's day begins. We are a territory. So in terms of our time zone, we truly are uh, uh, where in we are where America's day begins. We're an unincorporated territory. Uh, we're located in the Western Pacific across the uh, international dateline, Western Pacific Ocean. And and if you come to Guam, it's white sandy beaches, beautiful crystal clear waters. I mean, I love Hawaii. I was born there, but I'm Chamorro. I'm from Guam. I'm Chamorro. I'm Pohnpeian, uh, but I'm from Guam and I grew up on Guam. But I think we're just more beautiful than. Hawaii. Sorry, my Hawaii friends. But, you know, but, but, and I say that because it's really important because part of our issues, and I've talked to this, talked about this to Judge Collins and Amina and, and, and Professor Laura about um, the, the um, uh, concern about visitors, uh, you know, off island tourists coming to Guam and having the uh, presence of marijuana in the hotel district. Like it's sort of like the Waikiki of Guam. And uh, so I, I just bring that up. And, you know, Guam also has, um, we also have, you know, we have about 21,700 U.S. military members. So we are, we have a great Air Force base here, great Naval base. So that's another thing. You have the military uh, men and women coming out here. So the whole issue of marijuana, you know, exposure here might be an issue. So, so, uh, so Guam was the first U.S. territory to legalize medical marijuana uh, in 2014, I think it was. And then, uh, then recreational use of marijuana was legalized in 2019. So what's happened is, even though it's been, even though it's been passed, uh, the the rules and regulations have not been passed. The rules and regulations have been essentially they're just still looking at them. I mean, and that's a long time. I mean, uh, you know what? Why is that? I'm not sure. I I don't know. I'm not sure. But I did have a chance a chance to speak to our. Um, chairwoman of the um of the of the cannabis control board and so she she just said that you know they're still working on it and hopefully they'll get it done soon but i asked them what was the source what, what was our source uh, in terms of rules and regulations what did you guys look to and i think she told me that they looked to wash or colorado washington and i think oregon mm -hmm. yeah oregon so she looked to those but she says our our rules and regulations will be not as thick of a document as those others. But so that's where Guam is. And there, there are some concerns, and I'm sure you'll get into that later. But but yeah, that's where we are now. We don't have any marijuana dispensaries and so forth up yet. Thank you for clarifying all of that and also for providing uh, more information on Guam for our listeners as well. Thank you for that. Uh, if I can return to our discussion about marijuana federally still being a Schedule One illegal controlled substance. Uh, I just want to share with listeners that the National Conference of State Legislatures uh, has posted on their website that recently Michigan, uh, with in their legislature, has urged Congress to clarify its position on the legality of marijuana under the Federal Controlled Substances Act. Uh, we have several bills before state legislatures uh, and have for the past few years, uh, again, concerned about the federal role in marijuana policies. Uh, California passed a resolution urging Congress to pass legislation that would allow financial institutions to provide services to the cannabis industry. Bills and resolutions have been introduced in other states, again, calling on Congress to allow state authority for marijuana policy. Uh, finally, the National Conference of State Legislatures itself uh, sent a letter to Congress in 2018 that supported a bill to protect state sovereignty 
with respect to deciding marijuana regulation. Uh, so Professor Jefferson Exum, uh, if I could turn to you, uh, how do you see this uh, disconnect between federal law and state laws? Uh, and again, this ongoing criminalization of marijuana on the federal level, uh, how do you see this impacting the marijuana industry? Uh, and what impacts do you foresee in the future, specifically in the criminal justice system? That's a great question. And thank you for giving that framework, because I think it's really important for people to understand that as the legalized marijuana industry is developing, that means that there's always going to remain the illegal aspect. And what I mean by that is decriminalizing or legalizing marijuana still comes with regulations. And that means that anybody who's acting outside of those regulations, outside of those rules, um, is technically still violating the law. And when it comes to um, overlaying on top of that, the federal uh, criminalization of marijuana, it really means that everybody who's in this space is, um, is you know, breaking the rules at some, at some federal level. What I'm most concerned about with this and the development of, of um, sort of the cannabis business in states is that, is that remaining quote unquote illegal market and how even if there's relationship between the federal government and states, whether it comes to these bills dealing with state sovereignty, whether it is just sort of informal understandings, hands off, you know, sort of things like in President Obama's era of saying, you know, we're just not going to um, going to prosecute, going to, going to go forward with federal prosecutions in states where marijuana is legalized. I think it's really important to remember that for anybody who doesn't have access into the legal market, because you know banking is going to be limited, because um, other sort of um, avenues into you know entrees into business will be limited. Um, it means that those folks are always going to be seen as on the outside and possibly subject to criminal liability. And we're seeing this already in states that have decriminalized or legalized marijuana. Is that they actually see an uptick? in many of the prosecutions and um, punishment of people for marijuana offenses, because it's being said that, you know, they're not following the rules, they're not properly um, engaging in the market. But many times it's because they can't, you know, who's loaning to, um, to people who is, you know, giving them an avenue into, into the business side of things. And that is disproportionately, as we've seen with pretty much everything, going to fall um, to the detriment of black and brown communities in the United States. And we're seeing that already without plans to sort of um, racial racial equity plans in decriminalizing and legalizing marijuana, we're going to continue to see this. And that's, that's really what I'm concerned about. Um, and regardless of what happens on the federal level, what would be best, of course, is would be if there was just federal legalization of marijuana. Another option, as we've already discussed, is rescheduling the, the substance, right? But either way, without support for the, the entry into whatever legal markets are created, there will be people left behind who will then be criminalized. Their activities will be criminalized. So, Professor, you hit on something I find really interesting and the business side of all this, because uh, we know now that uh, 36 states and four territories have uh, medical marijuana legislation passed. We have uh, 17 states plus the District of Columbia that have recreational use. Um, just this weekend, I found a, a website in, in Phoenix that identifies the street value or the street price for marijuana versus uh, a dispensary in this town or that town or this uh, particular area. And there's absolutely a disparity. And what I'm learning is that in California in particular, there's a gigantic black market that is uh, people involved in the, uh, the medical world, uh, but outside the framework structured by the state of California. Uh, I find it sort of ironic that the very people who broke the uh, the barrier in the first place are now trying to protect their turf and and pushing uh, enforcement of uh, of that black market uh, uh, territory. Um, is, right. is, is I don't know. I find it ironic. Uh, what, what do you make of all that? Yeah, some of the regulators in California have reported that they've they've been saying that they're they're getting very frequent calls from people who are in the you know quote unquote legal marijuana market, marijuana industry, to report people who are selling outside 
of the regulations. And it's because they want to crack down on, um, on the kind of underground market in order to increase their profits. It's not because obviously it's not any belief of the ills of marijuana use or possession, any, you know, view that it's criminal to, to sell marijuana because that's what they're doing. They're just saying, if these folks aren't doing it the way I'm doing it, then um, that needs to be prosecuted. And the problem with that is that oftentimes there's not an avenue for um, for people in in various underserved communities to be you know m- cannabis business people in um, in the now kind of mainstream sense right and there's a real inequity there that that should be addressed. But it's absolutely business protectionism and and I find that interesting. But let me explain a little bit uh, why I think there's there's uh, um, what I would call uh, maybe an arbitrage out there. Uh, we have, at least in the state of Arizona, a 16% excise tax on top of the sales tax is going to occur at a retail sales uh, point uh, on, on a marijuana sale. To, to compound that additional amount, uh, most businesses will have gross income minus their business expenses is going to give their taxable income. But under Section 280E of the Internal Revenue Code, most of these expenses cannot be expensed by the business. So they get taxed essentially mostly on their gross revenue. Uh, and they've got a huge uh, uh, bottom line uh, income tax liability on top of the whole sales tax issue, uh, which is driving prices up. Uh, demand is apparently there to pay for it. But if you can sell, let's just make up numbers, if you can sell something for $100 uh, on the on the black market, that is essentially like what you're going to get at the the weed shop. Why should I go to the weed shop and pay three hundred and fifty dollars for that uh, that same product? Um, and that's that's exactly how markets work. And uh, uh, those who are in the markets and have uh, capital attracted to that market uh, are offended by that. And so I think you're right. They're pushing for this sort of uh, uh, criminal pursuit of those who are undercutting the market. Uh, Judge Tidinko Gatewood, have you seen any of these discrepancies between the illegal versus legal uh, marijuana market or uh, have thoughts on kind of bringing together state legalization and federal uh, categorizing of marijuana? Well, you know what we don't, of course, we don't have the uh, we don't have the legal market really up and going. You know what I mean? Like the government regulated market as of yet. Uh, because of the regulations are not they're not passed and they have they have to be brought before the Guam legislature. So so we don't have that. Um, we don't I you know what you I don't hear I don't hear people saying that there's a black. I mean, I'm, maybe there is a black market. I don't know. But we don't we don't hear that that much. You know, unfortunately, on Guam right now, the drug of choice is methamphetamine. I mean, we have a huge methamphetamine problem. And that's what I see every day in my court. I mean, I sentence. Honestly, I probably sentence four or five people a week, I think, uh, on methamphetamine and, and its distribution, uh, not so much manufacture, but distribution, uh, the sale and distribution conspiracy and so forth. Uh, the, the, the federal laws that I see, you know, we hear about is uh, the, uh, I think uh, the uh, Professor Jefferson Exum had, had talked about the comprehensive bill, maybe in the federal, at the federal level to um, legalize marijuana and including removing cannabis from the controlled sub- scheduled controlled substance act uh, as a schedule one uh, uh, um, a schedule one uh, substance, and so that that um, that I think uh, Majority Leader Schumer just indicated from New York that they are working on a comprehensive bill, and as you probably know, the United States House passed the Safe Banking Act on April nineteenth, twenty twenty one, which is just recent, with a vote of one thirty one. I'm um, sorry, three twenty one to one hundred three. And now uh, the legislation is uh, aimed to ensure that banks can take on legal state cannabis business clients without facing federal penalties. And uh, apparently, according to our research, the the federal, I mean, so the bill had um, broad bipartisan support and it's anticipated to have enough support to pass the Senate. I'm not sure about that, but that's what they, that's what is being said. And then the bill may be signed into law by the president. And then another uh, federal uh, law a bipartisan bill that is before Congress is the bill to legalize medical marijuana for uh, military veterans. And uh, so it would allow veterans to legally possess cannabis under federal law uh, as recommended by the doctors, you know, for medical marijuana. So, I mean, we see that, I mean, we see that federally, um, 
But, you know, this is really, I mean, in terms of the issues really new to Guam, I was, uh, Judge Collins has been working with me and uh, my courts and my um, my bar. We've been talking about bankruptcy and on a, a lot of issues, but we talked about marijuana and our Guam Visitors Bureau is very concerned about having marijuana being introduced uh, at the uh, tourism places here. That, that, that's a big issue. That's a big uh, controversy for now. Well, Judge, explain why that's a controversy, not only for Guam and maybe uh, turning off visitors, but why visitors are then in jeopardy when they return to their, say, Asian country. Right. So, so uh, you know, first of all, Guam likes to be known just generally as a family-friendly tourist destination. I mean, pre-marijuana, <laughs> pre-passage of marijuana. And now that we have it, um, we, as you know, as, as Judge Collins has indicated, you know, Guam is surrounded by many Asian Pacific countries. And they those countries have some of the strictest marijuana laws in the world. And many of our tourists, many of our Guam tourists come from these countries, including Japan and South Korea. So let me just talk about real quickly, I, I was just looking at uh, some stuff, uh, some research last night and, and a few days ago. So, uh, so South Korea in particular had issued a warning uh, to its citizens, and and you know we get a, we get a lot of South Korean visitors. In fact, we're getting a lot more uh, pre pre COVID. We, uh, tourism market was increasing, and um, the 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 warning that they had the citizens had received was, "We will arrest you if you smoke weed in another country." And uh, and this was like I think a couple of years ago, Canada had just uh, passed a, a legislation regarding marijuana usage. And so they were focusing on Canada, but I mean, obviously it applies to, to Guam too, now that we, we're gonna, we've passed it. So they basically have said weed smokers will be punished according to Korean law and, um, and up to possession of five years, you can get up to five years in prison. So if you, if you even look at some of the, I, I never really paid attention to celebrities from South Korea necessarily, just because I don't, I don't know, I, I just didn't, but, but I mean, especially the ones that were they were paraded around them in front of the media because they had been smoking weed. <laughs> so that was part of their, and they had to apologize. That was, you know, part of the, not only where they go to jail, but they had to apologize. So there, there is a stern warning from South Korea. And then even Japan, I mean, Guam's huge tourism market does come from Japan and the foreign ministry is warning its U.S. Uh, its citizens to stay away from drug owners and growers of, of the plant of marijuana. And so when they go travel to like Guam or New York or which New York and New Jersey, I think just recently passed legislation, they're saying, hey, don't, you know, just don't get involved in marijuana. And um, even, even just to, um, from what we're hearing, even if you had traces of marijuana on your clothing, I mean, we're not talking about in your blood system or you're in your urine, we're talking about on traces on your clothing your return to Japan could, you know, make you face uh, consequences that you wouldn't want to face uh, generally. And as I, as we did further research, uh, you know, the state, uh, I mean, not the state, but the country of Japan had a, a motto and it was Dame Zatai. And it just means, it, it means absolutely not in Japanese. And so they were, there, there's, there, there was a big political, what do you call it, campaign for not allowing marijuana legalization but they're finding in, from what I understand, they're finding in Japan now that more and more young citizens um, want to, you know, indulge in marijuana. But so, so you see some of, I mean, so I just pulled those two countries in particular. Uh, I was just curious about that. And, and that's one of the things that our, our Visitors Bureau has been speaking about. And, and one of the things that Judge Collins and I had spoken about when we prepared for, for this podcast Thank you very much for sharing that and uh, enlightening uh, many of us, definitely myself. Thank you. Just to return to the regulations, um, I, I do want to give one example of a regulation uh, in Arizona that we have because marijuana legalization and regulation is very new. Uh, so at this time, selling through delivery services is prohibited. So Arizona has not adopted any regulations to address delivery services. Uh, and actually, the Arizona Department of Health Services says that delivery will be unlawful until such rules and regulations are adopted. So this is just a sign of the rollout of 
regulations. Uh, Professor Jefferson Exum, you had mentioned potentially a goal of having a racial equity legalization plan. What could that look like in terms of a rollout in regulations uh, or what steps states that are legalizing could take? Yes, thank you for that, because even though I spoke on the one hand about um, even if or as I guess I should say, because it's happening, marijuana is being legalized, decriminalized in different places, it's still you know, leaving behind folks um, and really criminalizing their similar behavior that's just not in, you know, conforming to the regulatory scheme. But and so that needs to be addressed. But also, we have to, to recognize that for decades, really, the drug policy in the United States, so drug laws, very punitive drug laws, have really um, damaged communities, especially communities of color, especially Black communities. And so now, in, in thinking about expanding through the legal marijuana market, some jurisdictions have been, and some better than others, have been focused on racial equity, social equity, and really trying to reinvest in the communities that have been damaged. You know, we can even call it reparations if you're comfortable with that term, but that's really what's happening. Um, and I'll give you a few examples of, of some places. I mean, you mentioned in Arizona dealing with kind of this, you know, business side, um, like Denver, um, who's in Denver, they've really been very innovative and for forward thinking. They've, you know, changed their cannabis delivery permits and hospital license, hospitality licenses, I should say, retail stores, all of that. But on the social equity piece, what they're doing is just really tracking business ownership, cannabis business ownership, and then trying to inject capital into the creation of minority businesses in this area. It doesn't, you know, it's very hard in Denver. A lot of it is because of the racial dynamics in Denver already, the demographics. But what they're reporting now is that in Denver, um, there are 75% of the cannabis business owners are white, 6% are black or African-American. And so, you know, that's what's happening. But I do also think, you know, when we think about how damaging the war on drugs in general has been um, to communities. There are lots of other ways beyond just the business creation to reinvest in communities that have been damaged. And I'll give you some of those examples. So in um, March of 2021, we have uh, had a new law in New York that was signed by, um, by the governor there, um, Governor Cuomo. This is the Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act, called the MRTA. And some of what they're doing in the social justice realm also reveals just how, again, damaging and widespread the damage of, of our drug laws have been. So, for instance, it, it, in, um, it includes protection against housing and employment discrimination. It limits the ability to have your children removed from the home because of marijuana use. Similar things are happening in New Mexico, I should say, as well. They have a Cannabis Regulation Act that protects against the denial of benefits for the use of, of cannabis, keeping families together. It um, uses tax revenue. I'm going, I'm flipping between the two. This is back to New York, just to give some examples. In New York, they use tax re revenue for social good uh, goods like community reinvestment, job training, youth programs, drug treatment programs in their urban areas. And so, but it just tells you because you know, while all of this before this these reforms, this is what was happening to people for using marijuana for having marijuana prosecutions. They were losing their children. They were losing their homes. They were losing their jobs. And so we can't just, you know, magically legalize, um, set up a business structure and not address the damage that had been done that we have to admit was really without cause, right? Why were we um, doing that if we're now going to allow use and sale and growth without, without punishment? Thank you so much for sharing that. That's really fascinating. And it's very informative to get a, a look at, you know, just some examples of what's going on across the country. Um, I just want to turn a little bit, focus on some of the maybe implications for businesses. You know, of course, we've discussed today and the, the idea that, you know, marijuana remains illegal at the federal level, but we also have states and territories taking steps to legalize marijuana for various purposes, to develop regulations, to develop laws that are responsive to legalization. And I'm curious, maybe Judge Collins, if you could speak to maybe some of the, the obstacles that businesses in the marijuana industry are facing thanks to this mismatch between, you know, state law on the one hand and federal law on the other. Do these businesses present a good case for more uniformity? How do the businesses and their, the obstacles that they face, I guess, impact the broader debate about marijuana legalization? 
Well, uh, just uh, Judge uh, Tariqo Gatewood talked a little bit about the, the banking legislation that's on tap at the federal level. That is a huge issue because uh, the, the fact is the really big national banks, the B of A's, the Wells Fargo's, the Chase's, uh, they're unwilling to uh, to risk their charter for the sake of taking in marijuana dollars. But there are some banks that do. And those banks, I think, largely are not federally chartered, but they do charge pretty heavy uh, monthly maintenance fees just to have an account open with them. Uh, so there's a, a cost of doing business that, that you just simply have to pay if you're going to do any kind of banking at all. And it's tough to find those banks. Uh, those banks very heavily scrutinize you for your uh, know your customer sort of uh, legislation. They, they dig deeply into who you are, trying to make sure you're not an organized crime uh, syndicate or, or that type of thing. And, and when you've got the sort of money that's, that's coming through dispensaries and, and the holders of these licenses, they don't want to deal in cash. Uh, it's kind of dangerous to deal in cash. And so there really needs to be a solution probably at the federal level uh, to, uh, to, to allow banks to, to take the deposits and, uh, and go forward that way. Uh, I'll tell you another area, I, I talked a little bit about the, the taxation issue. That's a very big one uh, on the agenda for the marijuana businesses. Uh, just, uh, just last week, the Ninth Circuit struck down a challenge uh, on the constitutional basis of that uh, tax regulation that I said where you couldn't deduct your expenses. You know, is that going to change at some point? Maybe. Uh, but here's another one that's that's a big one. Uh, at the federal level, if you want to uh, issue securities uh, and have a publicly traded company where you can attract really big capital and really flexible capital and trade in, in uh, the shares, can't do that right now because the SEC is a federal institution and and uh, you're not going to be able to uh, do it in the U.S. Instead, Tadiko Gatewood mentioned Canada earlier. That's where the capital markets are. They're uh, uh, they're allowed to do this in Canada, and a lot of the big buys in Arizona uh, are coming from publicly traded Canadian companies. So there's the attraction of capital issue. So, you know, there's just a lot of different issues like that, uh, that that when you've got state laws rubbing up uh, against a contrary federal law, you're going to have these kinds of issues. And we're going to see, yeah, we're, and we see Canada, I guess, stepping in where we can't. So, yeah, thank you. So in specifically turning to, I guess, Arizona, um, as we talked about at the top of this episode, you know, marijuana sales for the adult use of the recreational market officially just began this January. Um, and as I said, this is a really fast transition. It was the fastest transition from voter approval to sales implementation of any state that's legalized marijuana to date. And I guess, practically speaking, what that meant was that the regulators here developed rules very quickly under incredible pressure and speed. And so I was curious, you know, if you have any insight, Judge Collins, into why this has been so quick in Arizona and how the speedy implementation has affected the marijuana industry on the business side of things. If you've seen any trends since, I mean, it's only been a couple of months, but since marijuana became legal, um, sort of what's what's the lay of the land here? Well, first of all, you and I had lunch with a uh, marijuana lawyer the other day, and he's describing the, the, the marketplace. And during COVID, not only alcohol sales increased, but the sales of marijuana went through the roof. Uh, and, and so there's a gigantic demand out there. Uh, and at the same time, uh, uh, local and state governments are in a cash crunch, and this is a, a rescue point that they're hoping for. And so they drove, I think, as fast as they could to get to a regulatory scheme to, to uh, authorize uh, recreational marijuana. So that, that opened in Arizona on January 20, and in the first 11 days of, uh, of that, uh, and I don't have any numbers after January, but in January, those last 11 days, uh, there were almost $3 million of retail uh, adult use marijuana. At the same time, they had uh, $16 million in medical use. I know darn well that the February numbers are going to show that the recreational use exceeds the medical use. Um, and just in January, uh, it brought $2 million in tax revenue into the state of Arizona coffers. So there's a big money grab, not only in businesses, but in governmental entities as well. Can I add something there about, I'm just thinking about this money grab, and I say this with, you know, full disclosure that the business side of things is not where my expertise is at all, but I just found it, find it fascinating. I mean, in the same way that there's these, you know, cannabis businesses that are growing, but, um, you know, 
you just said marijuana lawyers, right? There's a whole legal niche that's um, that's growing. Um, there are now uh, insurance, you know, marijuana insurance agencies that are specifically growing to to um, give protections in this in this business. And so, I mean, it's just really fascinating. But I just wanted to make one other point because we've been thinking about the federal decriminalization or legalization or rescheduling, something else that will happen, and this was actually pointed out to me, um, I learned this at an Arizona State Summit on on these issues, um, that it also means, you know, right now states can sort of have their own um, business and business plan and regulatory plan. If the feds were to step in and just completely lift um, any sort of barriers, it also means that there's now would then be interstate competition, and we can ex- we could expect the big businesses to come in and really just take over, right? Um, because it wouldn't it wouldn't be that you just have to sort of stay within your state borders to um, to buy and sell marijuana. So, so I think in early in the early days in Colorado and Washington, some of these pioneers and the uh, uh, marijuana legislation. Um, it wasn't too far off the mark to to suggest that it was the the local pothead who wanted to open up a shop. Uh, it is way beyond that now. It's mm-hmm. sophisticated money. It's sophisticated business uh, and lawyers. I mean, your students uh, are going to get involved in this space because there's a lot of transactional work. There's a lot of litigation work. Think of the litigation, uh, the the business fights that occur and the business divorces that occur, uh, and trying to maximize the business approach uh, to uh, to minimize tax burden, for example. Just like any any business, uh, there, the more money that's in this space, <laughs> the more dollars that. Uh, uh, that they'll be spending uh, with the legal talent. Think of the zoning implications. Uh, virtually uh, every shop in Arizona has to get a variance uh, from the local municipality uh, because they're too close to a church or they're too close to a school or that type of thing. Um, you name the sort of practice, uh, it, it seems to have a touch in the marijuana business. That's certainly something that struck me as I've learned more about this. There is just almost, I mean, there's no area of law that it doesn't touch. So it becomes very broad. And maybe Professor, talk, a, talk a little bit about the, uh, uh, the article that you brought to my attention, which was uh, one of your colleagues at the University of Alabama and some of the bankruptcy or some of the banking issues rather that, uh, that she's addressing. Oh, I, I sent you, yeah, I sent you an article the other day um, by Julie Hill at the University of Alabama that was just talking about um, sort of challenges that the, you know, we expect to see um, and, and we do see in with respect to banking and marijuana and how, and sort of comparing that to um, hemp and the, and the situation with hemp because um, hemp became legalized um, and, and also it became legal to, to sort of to bank um, for hemp businesses. And um, at the time, uh, I think, you know, there was some thought that, okay, this is sort of paving the way for, for marijuana, right. Um, in, in many respects, um, you know, once marijuana becomes legalized and then it'll, it'll become easy enough for them to, uh, to get banks to work with them. And what the article sort of goes into is, you know, the, the author makes the point that actually it's not, uh, it, it wasn't as smooth of a, of a transition with hemp uh, as you might expect, and that there are still many challenges with respect to banking um, in the hemp business. And many bankers, many banks still don't want to work with hemp businesses. Um, and so even though they have the sort of legal ability to do so, there's a lot of hesitation for various reasons. And she suggests that some of that skepticism and hesitancy that the banks are, um, you can see from the banks in the hemp industry, uh, might uh, also transfer over to marijuana if and when um, we legalize it. So even if, for example, the state, the Safe Banking Act um, gets passed at the federal level, that doesn't necessarily mean that a bunch of banks are going to run and jump in and be ready to go and ready to bank these marijuana businesses um, because they, there are still um, numerous obstacles. And I won't go into all of them, um, but it, it's definitely worth a read. It's called Cannabis Banking, um, and it's by Julie uh, Hill at the University of Alabama. One of the things you really point out here is that uh, the business doesn't like risk and there's a premium paid for risk. And so uh, banks are no different. Uh, in fact, they're probably as conservative as you're going to find in trying to avoid risk. Uh, and even though there's literally billions of dollars circulating in the marijuana world, uh, banks don't want to risk their charter if there's some possibility that they're going to find themselves losing that charter because of the deposits they're taking. So un- until they get legislation that's going to pave the way, they're going to continue to avoid that risk. Absolutely. It really opens an eye to the risk averse, (laughs) risk averse, I guess, uh, attitude of the industry. Plus also, may I just add to like if a, um, for example, if a uh, defendant is picked up and prosecuted and convicted of a methamphetamine charge, 
uh, but there was marijuana also uh, involved and um, at a home, say somebody's home. Uh, in, in federal law, uh, you know, there, the, uh, that home is subject to forfeiture. I mean, so uh, so if there were like marijuana, um, you know, equipment, the growers, the lights, the big lights, I, I've seen them just because I've, well, I've had, I've had that happen. I've seen it from one of my court cases. They have these huge lights and for the growers, uh, everything will be confiscated and forfeited to the government. And so I mean, it could be somebody's home, somebody's uh, huge warehouse. And, you know, they may, they may be uh, uh, manufacturing methamphetamine or just selling methamphetamine or distributing it. But there's also marijuana uh, activity going on. So uh, I think that that's also something that I, I, I'm pretty sure we're going to see. And I have seen it, at least in one of my cases. I'm thinking of other economic uh, uh, interesting tidbits, if you will. Uh, in Arizona, there are 130 licenses. Uh, they recently had an, a, a lottery uh, for issuance of another 14 licenses in certain parts of the state, in certain locations. Uh, they issued 377 lottery tickets. Uh, you had to file an application with your lottery ticket. The lottery tickets were 25 grand a piece. And if you didn't get one of the 14 licenses, goodbye to your $25,000. That just suggests the sort of demand that's out there, uh, particularly in a state like Arizona where they have limited licensing. There are some states that have a vastly bigger number of licenses that are out there and it drives the, the price down, of course. But these licenses, because they're in such scarce uh, supply and such high demand, uh, I'm being told that in private transactions, these licenses are going for 25 to $30 million a piece. So there's a lot of money in this space. Can I, may I just ask Judge Collins on that? Is that first of all, is that is that a non-refundable licensure application fee? And yeah, second, it's a lottery ticket. You bought a lottery ticket. If you didn't win the lottery, uh, uh, there goes your twenty-five. Okay, I guess I don't buy lottery tickets. <laughs> guess, yeah. What about? Um, oh, I think one of the things that that I found interesting, like under the Guam law for the regulation, or actually the Guam regulations, uh, Judge Collins is that they required that um, ha half the ownership would be local ownership. And that would be just somebody from another state coming in and, and claiming a monopoly. Is that, what, what, what is it like in Arizona in terms well, of- I, I think the single biggest uh, holder of licenses in Arizona, I think they hold 14 licenses, is a Canadian publicly traded company by the name of Harvest. Uh, so out of state money, out of country money is coming in to, uh, to get involved in this. And, and here's so, something else that's going on, and I think this is particularly proven out in Colorado, is that uh, to attract good employees, uh, you have to pay them. Uh, and so the benefits and pay that are going on in Colorado uh, are such in the, in the marijuana dispensary business that is driving people. The, the former baristas at the Starbucks are coming to the weed shops uh, where they're much better provided for. And so restaurants and, and uh, coffee shops and so on are really finding it difficult to, to hire talent, period, much less good talent. So it's changing the dynamics of the labor market as well. Thank you. Um, this is all really fascinating. And just there are so many issues that we can touch on. I know we could spend at least another hour doing this. Um, but I just wanted to ask sort of as a concluding question, and this is really open to anybody. Um, and we have talked about a lot of a lot of issues here. And so I just wanted to think, you know, think towards the future. You know, if interested observers are, are watching this issue or watching marijuana legalization, you know, what are sort of the number one things that they should look out for? What are the major issues that we think are going to be, you know, at the forefront as we move forward um, in this space? Well, you know, I don't know what will be at the forefront, but I'll tell you what I hope will be a big part of the conversation. And that is that we continue to keep our eye on who is benefiting as um, this trend continues and who is continuing to suffer and that we don't just um, focus on the business regulation side without really making amends for um, for what this country has done to communities on you know, sort of on the premise of crime control and um, safety, and that we really think about avenues to encourage you know, minority business owners and development um, in this space. That we reinvest in communities that have been um, damaged. By, um, by drug policy and laws in this country and that we don't continue to leave people behind. That, that's my hope. There have been some discussions of that, but you know, business has a way of taking over and being at the forefront and, and profit and all that. And so I hope that we don't forget um, the individuals who are part of this story also 
who may not have entree into these um, into these big capital markets that we're that we're developing. So, Professor, when I hear you say that, uh, I I think of the Small Business Administration, of course, a federal agency, and uh, and their commitment to uh, minority lending and so on. Do we really need this to occur at the federal level, and are the states pretty much incapable of doing it at the sort of level that you're speaking of? I mean, I think I think it can be done at both levels, and I think we're seeing some of that um, in you know in places that do have this racial equity lens as part of their plan. There have been you know groups of regulators that have really made this their mission, and um, again, this is benefit of going to a, a program at Arizona State University. So thank you very much. Um, where I met a group of of, um, of cannabis regulators, and it actually was a group of Black women, and um, it has been you know their mission to make sure that as regulation is is um, being established in their respective jurisdictions that there is reinvestment from you know the money that is coming into the states in communities that have been harmed by by prior drug policy this can of course happen on the federal level as well but states are, are very capable of doing it and in fact states need to do it and need to do it quickly because you know the point that I was making before once the federal you know barriers are lifted if we get there what it's going to mean is that it's just more of a rush by big businesses to step in, um, and and we can expect to see small businesses eventually kind of you know crowded out of the market, um, pushed out of the market. So if if anybody's going to benefit, any small businesses now is the time, and that needs to be done with an equity lens. Thank you, Judge. What are your thoughts about where we're headed? Uh, well, so um, I, I don't want to give my opinion about that, but I will say that uh, I'll say, let me just, if, if you don't mind, uh, Judge Collins, I think when I spoke to Vanessa Williams, the uh, chairwoman of the Cannabis Control Board, and she's been working on the regulations for a long time now, and you're trying to get it passed. These are the concerns she raised. Uh, number one, the um, Cannabis Control Board for Guam deals only with the recreational use of marijuana, and then, but there's a separate commission for the medicinal usage. And so, you know, there, I think there might be concern about that. They, they need to really uh, be in sync in some, uh, in some instances, I'm sure. The things that she was concerned about as they have been writing the regulations include the, the fact that Guam has no seed to sale, sale system, which I didn't know what that meant until I, I spoke to her. Uh, and she's also saying that they're concerned about ensuring that there's no public consumption, no cannabis uh, cafes, no consuming edib edibles in public like like there are that that may occur in other jurisdictions, and then we talked about the uh, the zoning. Uh, and Judge um, Collins spoke about the variance. Uh, currently, uh, as I understand it, and, and I, actually I haven't done the research on it, so I don't know. But the, what she brought up was that we do have our hotel age zone, but there's also C zone, which is commercial zones. And so the question is, uh, you know, if if uh, marijuana is going to be allowed in the hotel zone, she's indicated that uh, the, the primary economic sector, which is tourism, might be affected. And the Visitors Bureau is very concerned about rebuilding tourism, especially after the pandemic crisis. And Guam's reputation as a family-friendly destination could be impacted if we don't take care of that. But on the other hand, you see advocates uh, here in Guam who are seeing this as a uh, much-needed dollars industry for our economy. And you hear Judge Collins speaking about, you know, how much taxes they are, taxes upon taxes they are, they are piling upon uh, this marijuana industry. Another thing that she brought up was, I, I've never heard of vertical integration. So basically, if it's, it allows licensees to engage in more than one aspect of marijuana industry, include, you know, for example, cultivation, manufacturing, and retail. And proponents of, of the integration want to ensure quality control by having the product at all stages but those against it are saying, look, and this is what she's telling me, that um, um, the, those who are against vertical integration as they're preparing their um, uh, regulations are worried that large off-island buyers will buy up the licenses and uh, shut out the small island uh, cultivators, manufacturers, and retailers out of business. She says the rules and regs do not allow for vert vertical integration, but that's something that she's, she talked about And when, as I researched this matter for preparation of this podcast. And she says Guam doesn't have the resources at this time to pr purchase a seed to sell tracking system. And we don't have the labs right now. So I, you know, I, I guess it, it just sounds like it's so costly based on what Judge Collins is saying uh, and with the Arizona experience and, and the Colorado experience. So those are the concerns I think. I just want to just reiterate what she said. I'm not opining on those 
necessarily. So I guess uh, from my view, um, first of all, I, I really am fascinated by the business side of this thing. Uh, I was a finance and accounting major, and and uh, we see business transactions all the time in our court. And and so you you, you heard me mention puns earlier. It's, it's time to lay one of those out. My favorite uh, term so far: somebody who's engaged in the marijuana business is a ganjapreneur. So I, I like that a lot. But but it seems to me like um, alcohol. Um, Prohibition didn't work. The nose is under the tent now in, in uh, the really the greater majority of states uh, around the country. The trend certainly looks to me as if this is going to happen at the federal level, probably in, in my lifetime, even though I'm way older than all of you. And, and there's just there's no turning back. And so I, I am not at all believing that we fully understand the long-term ramifications. In my court, we see uh, people file bankruptcy because they're compulsive gamblers. You know, we we have a state lottery system in Arizona, and most states do. Um, we're, in some sense, encouraging people to, to dive into that addiction. I don't know if uh, uh, marijuana really fits that bill, but I'm guessing there are someday we're going to understand better what exactly marijuana use does to people uh, at different ages and in different uh, psychological states. And I just I'm afraid we don't know what that price is going to be. Um, and, and I'm afraid I'm going to see it in my court, too, because uh, um, of whatever is going on in their lives. And maybe it's compounded by marijuana and beyond. But, you know, drug addiction certainly is something that factors in 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 people's bankruptcy filings. So just in my little niche of the world, uh, I see impact of these kinds of things. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see how this all pans out. Well, thank you so much, Judge Collins, Judge Tidenko Gatewood and Professor Jefferson Exum. We have covered a lot of ground today, and I'm very, very grateful for your expertise and for for you for taking the time to share your experiences. And thanks to my co-host as well, Professor Beatty. This concludes our episode on legal considerations after marijuana legalization. Thanks to everyone for listening and see you next time on Legal Eats. It's been, been a great pleasure. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.